Welcome to Built to Play, your weekly dose of video game news and culture. I'm Dominic Bali. And I'm Daniel Rosen. This week, I wrote show notes drunk at 2 in the morning, so it's going to get weird. We have Minecraft movies and Razor scooters. Also, Sony's been hit by layoffs, Nintendo finally euthanized the Wi-Fi connection, and we have a boatload of mobile news. Plus, we went to Vector this week and brought back presents. Interviews! We brought back interviews with Rachel Simone Weil, Kara Stone, Nadine Lessio, and Sagan Yee. But first, get ready to spend all of your money forever. Steam sales are about to become more common. So um, a new Steamworks tool that just rolled out to developers is going to allow them to set their own sales and sale prices for games with a few caveats, but that's pretty cool. Yeah, so previously developers had to work it out with Steam and negotiate a time and price together. Now it's all in the developers' hands. Uh, Developers can queue sales up to two months in advance, and those sales can last up to two weeks. Which seem like pretty reasonable restrictions. I mean, you you don't want to announce your sales six months ahead of time and then make it last all year. It's also kind of interesting, I mean, the... Most of the time it is retail that just determines when the sales do happen. That doesn't seem like a power... I mean, if the toy comes out or if a movie comes out, it, Walmart's going to say when the sale is, not right. Warner Brothers. Exactly. But, but you know, Hasbro, Warner Brothers, whoever, is probably able to say we want to drop our price permanently. Yes, they can lower the MRSP. Yeah. Um, the, um, what makes this interesting, though, on top of that, is that there have been people who complained about Steam sales, like Jason Rohr, mm-hmm. um, regarding their how they devalue the, pri- the actual uh, product. Yeah, product. Um, for most people, I mean, that kind of lets them stay out of the whole deal entirely. Yeah, they can opt. They can choose to opt into upcoming weekly Steam sales that they can see who is involved in. They can opt out. They can not say, do any sales at all. To be fair, you never had to make your game on sale during a Steam sale. Um, it was kind of just an option that you'd probably want to take because it works really well. Yeah, it, it gets you a ton of sales. But I don't think... I have a, like Jason Rohr's thing with Steam sales was, the I guess, the idea that there's this commoditization of art that he doesn't like. But at the same time, it's like if you choose to you know increase the sales of your product, that's all up to you, right? And to some point, Jason Rohr has to realize that uh, this is a business. And mm-hmm. ultimately, whatever sells the most... Is uh, is going to get you get you down? If you can sell two, if you can sell two thousand copies of the same game at a lesser price, you just made a buttload of money. Right, like, doesn't matter how that that money comes in, and ultimately, it's going to be enough people that even if it's a lower price, it's worth it. At the end of the day, the art is the most important thing. But if you want to keep making more art, you do need to make a little bit of scratch. Yeah, yeah. Um, Valve's Doug Lombardi says that this is about shortening the distance between developer developers and customers. I think this is about lowering overhead so they can put people on more interesting projects, like maybe fixing green lights. I mean, part of this is I mean, we're seeing this long term in that the. Steam is starting to become way more open and is starting to become an app store. We talked yeah. about this last week. The the fact of the matter is Steam wants to become an all-encompassing uh, all-encompassing retail service. And for... to do that, they need to take this kind of laissez-faire attitude. Well, it's not even like a laissez-faire attitude. They just need to start like shipping off tasks that they mm-hmm. would rather not do to developers mm-hmm. rather than taking so much overhead on this stuff. Right. I think, well, I think a part of it is like this specifically, like there is nothing, like, yeah, it's like you said, it's all overhead. Like there's no reason they had to do this other than having fine control over the market, but that's not what they want anymore. I think they do kind of want to sit back and create 
technologies and strategies that they can influence in this store in the in the in the store in the steam retail space uh but i don't think they want to really have any fine control over it yeah they they'd much rather have something like a framework something like google play rather than um say a very tightly controlled apple ios store mm-hmm. or i guess how sony sony and the microsoft stores work which are very tightly controlled yeah, or the nintendo store which is like just like an iron gate around your content yeah so i mean they again and the thing is, they do that to kind of create a verifiable and easy-to-use experience, right? Sony wants you to get on the store, have no problems. There's no it, – it's – it's not like a, a it's not like a giant crazy barn in there. It's whatever you need for a. You're not going to find Horse Simulator 2014. Exactly. You're Do you not, have Train Simulator 2014 spelled with a Z? You might actually find Euro Simulator if you're in the wrong if you're in the Europe server. That you would you in, in PSN? No, but um, that would be funny. That would be pretty good. They should put all those. They, a humble bundle this week is uh, all simulator games. That yep. So you know what. Lesson learned from this, buy simulator games. Buy simulator games is where the future is going. <laughs> and because that is where the future is going, it looks like Sony has to lay off a bunch of people from Santa Monica. That's not true. That's, that's, that's that nothing that's, to do with simulators. It's whatsoever. But Sony Santa Monica, the studio best known for its work on the God of War games, have been hit some by some pretty severe layoffs this week. Uh, according to Sony Computer Entertainment America, quote, this is a result of a cycle of resource realignment against priority growth ideas within SCE Worldwide Studios. We do not take these decisions lightly. However, it is sometimes necessary to make changes to better serve the projects of the studio. Or, in English, um, oh god, we're going down, oh god, oh god. <laughs> I mean, Sony said, to be fair, but God Award games have been, they haven't been selling that well recently. Mm-hmm. They, the first two were big, uh, best, uh, big bestsellers, the third one did pretty well too. The, um, after that, though, they just got to make spinoffs, and people, the, they actually kind of downgraded the value of the mm-hmm. God of War brand, I feel. I, be- I also believe that Santa Monica had some part in working on the recent flop uh, play- Sony PlayStation All-Stars. Yeah. And sort of their other big projects are kind of helping development along on PS- PlayStation Network indie games, um, which I'm sure does fine for them, but probably doesn't bring the bacon home like Sony would want it to. No, no. Among the layoffs was level designer Jonathan Hawkins, who revealed that among the layoffs, a new IP the studio was working on was also quietly canceled, which is a disappointment. I mean, it's good to see Sony does invest quite a lot in new IPs, and they tend to be a bit hit and miss. But it's, it's always good to see new IPs yeah. in general. Um, it does kind of suck. We don't really know what their next game is, uh, just that it's a new IP, and it probably wasn't the one they just canned a bunch of people who were working on. Yeah. Um, but also at the same time, like the thing that gets me about Santa Monica is that they don't really have a developer anymore. No. They, they had David Jaffe once. They had David Jaffe and they had a whole bunch Corey of... Corey Balrog. Yeah. And those guys, they were they were kind of like, if you were looking for the auteurs of, of the, Sony, the Sony America side, mm-hmm. those were the guys you were looking for. But uh, David Jaffe left pretty soon after God of War. And, and Corey Balrog left right after God of War 2. So they don't really have anyone left now. Um, it's interesting to see what Sony Santa Monica will become. It'd be unfortunate if it suddenly became like um, uh, just kind of what a lot of Nintendo studios or Capcom studios had to become, which is just shells. Yeah, just a bunch of sort of desks that random developers seem to fill in. Though I think at Nintendo it seems to be much more about like these people have been here for 40 years, whereas Capcom I think it might end up being these people have been here for three weeks. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well... Which is which each have their own set of very different problems. Not that not that I think that this, this Santa Monica is at risk right now of becoming this, but I mean think of retro where they were bought up not retro, um uh, Rare. Rare, where they were bought up by Microsoft made a couple of games that were 
were solid um, between... Mostly terrible. Well, they, they were B-plus. I hate Rare. Okay, there you go. Uh, <laughs> I hate the UK and Fish and Chips and Rare. They made a couple games and then were basically carved out, and now they just do infrastructure and maps and stuff like and that. And Connect Adventures. Connect Adventures. And Avatars. Don't forget they, Avatars. <laughs> so Never forget Avatars. Their entire studio is basically... I mean. You may like rare games, but that studio does not represent anything. What it started no, off there. none of those developers are there anymore. None of that idea is there anymore. I, I have a feeling. I'm sure Santa Monica will pull itself out. You know, Sony's American developers are very. Or, you know, they're talented folks. I don't know what this new IP is, but I mean, it's not going to be out for a while, regardless. And uh, they might suffer. Unfortunately, they might suffer some more layoffs on their way there. Speaking uh, of cancellations, it looks like Nintendo's going to nix the. Uh, Wi-Fi connection service, and it's going to be going offline permanently. Yeah, on May 20th, 2014, DS and Wii games that use the Nintendo Wi-Fi connection service are going to be going offline permanently. So what was that thing? So uh, Wi-Fi connection launched in 2005 with Mario Kart DS as the DS's online service, and it kind of grew to work with Wii games as well. It's where we kind of got Nintendo's infamous friend code system, I guess is probably their uh, biggest, tr- the, y- the WFC's biggest contribution to Nintendo history. Uh, as well as the general kind of understanding these days that Nintendo's online is very behind the times. Uh, in 2012, it was replaced by the Nintendo Network, um, the which is what the 3DS and uh, Wii U use for their online infrastructure. Um, which, I mean, it actually works by comparison, which yeah. is a plus. Doesn't and, have friend codes. I mean, it has one friend code, but not 20 friend codes. Yeah, no, and... Because of that, it actually allows for some shared accounts between devices, although their connectivity and functionality... They're is working little, on it. Yeah. They're getting better. It, but... It's... I mean, the Wii Shop channel is still going to work, but this doesn't bode terribly well for its future. Not that anyone was buying Wiis or buying anything online on a Wii. No, but if you got a virtual console game you're looking for, like, I still haven't bought... In, I still haven't bought Rondo of Blood, and I should probably get on that. That is true. Um, the... I mean, one of the... It's the whole Wii Virtual Console thing is just utterly bizarre because they haven't moved all of those Wii games to, to Wii U, but you can access the Wii U shop, the Wii e, the Wii shop from the Wii U, which is what makes me think that shop is going to stay online okay. until they make a Wii U without or a next a system without Wii backwards compatibility. That would make sense, yeah. Uh, and that's when they'll be able to start. That's when they should probably will you'll see those games start moving over. Uh, but yeah, that service is, I mean, Virtual Console is a thing I loved and still kind of love, even though Nintendo treats it like the red-headed stepchild. I, they treat it like the red-headed stepchild because they don't understand it. It's like, they, it's just kind of foreign to them for whatever reason. They don't see the value in it, I feel I think like. They, I think they saw a lot of value in it, but then fu- I think there was a lot of value in it on paper, especially from a historical per- perspective, but also from a business perspective. I think in practice, the only games that really make money on the service are Mario, Zelda, Kirby, Sonic. That's true, yeah. And once you release those, it's hard to get other developers on board because I don't think Beyond Oasis is going to do terribly well for Sega after they have to re-ESRB rate it. Yeah, yeah. So this this also doesn't affect the DSi shop, Hulu, browsers, Netflix, and YouTube. Not that anyone was using the Wii browser or Wii Netflix or Wii YouTube. <laughs> you, were, you, were using, you weren't using Opera on your, uh, on your Wii? Oh, man, the Wii Opera browser is probably the... The worst thing in the universe? Yeah, no, it's amazing how, how much they botched it. It's almost as bad as the... Uh, uh, the uh, Nintendo DS mm-hmm. browser, which was absolutely incredible. Yeah. The um, to be fair, that Net- we Netflix is actually I, th- I believe like at, for a, at some point like two or three years ago, twenty percent of Netflix users were watching it on a Wii. I'm not surprised. You know, I actually had a friend who who did use Netflix got, on the Wii. I've got friends who still do it. It's just it's just a box you own that you don't do with that you don't don't do anything else with. I mean, why not? You have the Wii already. Why exactly. buy a Roku? 
Anyway, basically, um, what does this mean? So basically, um, Nintendo is killing off any DS and Wii, and Wii multiplayer servers. So that affects games like Pokemon and Smash Bros, which had online multiplayer, but also games like Professor Layton and Dragon Quest IX, which featured kind of DLC you can only download from within the game, not from any shop. Um, what's interesting about this is that if you think about it, all the PSP servers are actually still up. Monster Hunter is still totally playable online. Uh, I think that's probably because they're still plugged into that general PSN system that they're still using from the beginning. Yeah, I think there's a more tighter infrastructure between the games, so they don't necessarily need to um, they don't necessarily need to dump all of PSP at once. With like, it's, it's probably doing something simultaneously with uh, the PSP stuff and other maybe yeah. stuff with the Vita. But it really does show that Sony knew what they were doing with online from day one in that sense, and that Nintendo and then Nintendo never really put both feet into that online game. Yeah, I mean. When it came time to launch new consoles, they just totally scrapped the old system for a you know a better one, um, but it's still like you still have to scrap the old system. Like yeah. people still play Pokemon online, right? The the thing with the PSP servers I find is that I think in Japan people still play the PSP for whatever reason. Mm-hmm. Uh, I can't imagine anyone here because it just if you're gonna play a PSP Not playing game, the city online, no. Well, if you are, you're playing it on a Vita. Yeah, the I feel like the people who owned PSPs were the kind of, like, the people who had a bunch of money, the people who were the first to... They were the ones who bought it in the first year or so, and then then they all transitioned to the PlayStation Vita. Yeah. Um, anyway, this, yeah. this is a... This is a, a probably overdue to it some is, extent. But it's kind of unpleasant in a weird way. Like... Who, it's it's unfortunate when these things vanish because it gets you thinking like who's to say that we shop channel won't vanish and yeah. then all those virtual console games they archived will just disappear. It is interesting from a curating perspective because I mean it is that you, you can't boot up a Wii and have it now or a DS I guess in this case um, and have it work like you'd expect it to. A lot yeah. of the functionality is now missing and it's kind of interesting to see like they're actually. We like to think that these th- that in the modern times things last forever, mm-hmm. but really I think we're getting to a state of where it might actually be less permanent. Yeah, we're getting kind of this digital ephemerality, and I mean a lot of games like that just aren't going to work as well. Pokemon without online trading just isn't as fun, or online battling. Yeah, it's in- it's definitely it's having something to think about. Yeah. Speaking of things to that at to least ponder on, yeah, to really take to heart and and get concerned about is uh, what the heck is Hollywood doing? So, the Minecraft movie, what? Yeah, so according to Notch, the head of Mojang, Marcus Person, uh, Warner Brothers has secured the rights to, and is working on, a Minecraft movie. What does that even mean? Uh, no one knows. There's, we don't know anything about it, um, other than that the Lego movie producer Roy Lee is attached. And I guess that makes a certain amount of sense, because Minecraft, Minecraft the movie is about as close as you can get to Lego Movie 2 without being Lego Movie 2. I mean, they are making Lego Movie 2. Obviously. Yeah. But they, but this way they can have Lego Movie 2 and 3 out at the same time in the form of Minecraft the movie. I just, Minecraft has an even less of a plot than I think Lego does. Mm-hmm. Lego at least has, like, childhood inspiration. You can kind of get something behind it. There's a whole culture and community around it. But I think Minecraft- you're forgetting... Kids love Minecraft. That is, I mean, yeah, I get kids love Minecraft, but there's still like, I don't know, there's still, there's not the same community. I mean, there is a whole bunch of people who would make, might play Minecraft, mm-hmm. and there is, um, there are conventions devoted to Minecraft, but I don't think that there's just as much to mine as. <laughs> Boom. Uh, yeah, I'm sorry about that, as there is for Lego. Yeah, I mean, I have to wonder what's going to happen with this. I kind of hope there's a character who does like that permadeath run thing just in the movie. <laughs> Someone who makes a giant calculator in the movie. Just a giant penis. <laughs> 
you know, like Minecraft, like Notch intended. Well, speaking of privates, um, <laughs> that's a good one. Okay, so next up we have the console wars are being turned into a movie. Yes, um, Evan Goldberg and Seth Rogen, who you may know from Knocked Up and Superbad, are making a movie about the 1990s console wars between Sega and Nintendo. So this is uh, this was over during the 1990s, and Sony, funnily enough, purchased the rights to the film, yeah. which I guess is kind of perfect. It's sort of this weird, like, listen, we have to tell you where we came from, because this is the prequel to their domination. Yeah. I mean, the way you end that movie, hopefully, is the, is the talk of if someone laughing at the CD expansion to um, mm-hmm. whatever future console Nintendo's working on, and then Sony leaving in a huff. It, I, like, that movie has to end with this come-to-Jesus moment of, like, Sony, Sega, Nintendo, destroy everything and that's when sony arrived (laughs) and that's when they both lost to the playstation yeah boom console wars 2 rise of the playstation (laughs) man and i just hope i hope that movie is just them talking to ex-ceo uh Ex-Sony CEOs. Ken Kutaragi. Yeah. Just bring in Ken Kutaragi and have him talk for an hour. Just get out a Ouija board and ask Yamauchi what he thinks. (laughs) (laughs) These weird kids who play in their basements. Long hair covering their eyes who play RPGs and are depressed. (laughs) (laughs) To be fair, this is the era where Nintendo was like partially the mafia. Yeah, right. that's true. Yamauchi was strong-arming the Yakuza. That, that is such a bizarre era for Nintendo. But I, the one thing I'm really wondering about is casting. Because, yeah. I, I mean, not... Hollywood is fairly, like, xenophobic when it comes mm-hmm. to casting. Yeah. Uh, who is going to play Yamauchi? I really hope they get a white guy to play. You I, know, I kind of... You know who would actually be really good would be um, Ken Watanabe. But Ken Watanabe plays every Japanese I person. I know, which is what makes me feel like a racist for saying that, but he'd be really good as Yamauchi. I, it feels... He's yeah. a little too big. Like, he's not spindly enough. Yeah. But otherwise, he's got, like, the face and the voice. He does have the face. He could pull off, like, wacky giant sunglasses. Yeah, I can see him saying, like, horrible things about his employees and human beings in general. Yeah. So who plays Sonic? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Nolan North plays Sonic. Of course. Um, (laughs) Troy Baker plays Tom Kalinske. What was it? Bruce Campbell plays... um... Howard Lincoln? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, Yeah, there you go. The uh, I think that would yeah okay so I think we we just created the perfect movie yeah we uh, got to go to the Sony right now <laughs> uh, Ken Kuragi is played by the ghost of Ken Kuragi um, <laughs> I think he's alive but, okay. but but I'm pretty sure we can get his ghost too. oh yeah sure we 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 don't need we don't need him to be dead um, <laughs> anyway speaking of dead <laughs> speaking of death. And sadness, and I guess some joy, uh, King has uh, given up chasing the candy copyright, or trademark, rather. Which, I mean, this is a pretty short story in that it's just, like, us shrugging and about damn time. <laughs> yep. Um, we, t- I tol- oh, we told you so? Yeah, so King for a long time has been going after this trademark candy and saga, um, re- at least in regards to video games. They sued um, Candy Slots, and they sent a message to uh, – what well, I didn't sue. They sent, they sent a cease and desist to Candy Slots, and then they sent another one to, to the Banner, Banner saga. saga. And the Banner Saga said, yeah, we're not abiding by this, <laughs> and Candy Slots – we don't know what happened to Candy yeah. Slots. It's a bad OIS game. Uh, <laughs> They still technically own the trademark in the European Union, and they are firm on protecting it. But but in America, they have given up. Which is good. I mean, yeah. But uh, it looks like Candy Jam won. Yeah, Candy Jam being the uh, the game jam that was about making a ton of games about candy. Yeah, to mess with copyrights. I'm happy. I'm happy. It feels like we've, you know, the, the Wicked Witch is dead, um, but she still makes a billion dollars. <laughs> <laughs> the Wicked Witch has lost the moral battle. 
And another mobile news. Um, not to be left out of the Nintendo Doom fun, Nintendo's shareholder Seth Fisher had um, some Nintendo opinions. Capital N, capital O. So it looks like uh, Seth Fisher had this to say. We believe Nintendo can create very profitable games based on in-game revenue models with just the right development team. Fisher said, just think of paying 99 cents just to get Mario to jump a little higher. To which I respond, I think Fisher maybe hates video games. Yeah, I, like that seems like Fun? the worst idea. But see, I can't imagine a worse idea than paying 99 cents to make Mario jump higher. Like, this is specifically why the other week when we were talking about Nintendo going mobile, we said they shouldn't do it. Because this is the only way to make money on the App Store. It's not, well, it's not even just like the only way to make money. It's, the, it feels cruel. Like, this yeah. is, like, at some point, if you, like, at what point are we just going, okay, what if we just bring out the Super Nintendo and start playing Mario again? Right. Like, at what point does that become a more valid option than trying to What if to I flee- just break your thumbs? It's harder that way. <laughs> <laughs> like, at some point, I, like... If these games continue the way it is, I mean, with Dungeon Keeper... Yeah. Like... Which takes 14 hours to build one block. And, like, 14 hours to build one block unless you want to pay 99 cents every 15 seconds... Right. Um, to, ...to speed up your time. The, um... It just... I don't know. This is... This just makes me want to, um... Stab? Um... Mr. Fisher? He, yeah. He's... Okay. He's a hedge fund manager in Asia, so presumably he has control over a undisclosed, though presumably large, amount of Nintendo stock... As we've established, he hates video games and fun. Um, I feel like because this is an actual shareholder who said it, Nintendo might listen and laugh at his face in person. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, but the thing is, I think Nintendo has a very, actually, very good idea of where their strengths are mm-hmm. when it comes to this stuff. Um, they're Nin- experimenting with free-to-play ideas on 3DS and on Wii U. They, they have some interesting concepts there. And just the App Store is a race to the bottom. Yeah. And you don't want to get in that race. It's... The, the problem is, like, because games just burn out so fast with the free-to-play model, it's hard to get any lasting impression on in the iOS App Store or in Google Play. Um, and I think that they really don't want to do this because all this is going to do is going to create bad... Um, Bad audience reaction. Like, mm-hmm. what these, a lot of these money guys fail to take into account. And this is like, a, this is, is that a, there is an art to making these things? Not only is there an art, but there is like, in the same way that you have to take into account potential profits and t- potential costs, you have to take into account audience reaction. Because if you kill the brand, mm-hmm. you are not killing, this game may succeed, but the next three won't. Right. There is no, that is a very short term way of thinking about developing video games. Absolutely. Like, and it's, it's, I can't imagine anyone working on a Dungeon Keeper 2 or wanting no, a Dungeon Keeper 2. I can't imagine anybody buying a Dungeon Keeper or buying, downloading Dungeon Keeper 2. Yeah, that just doesn't seem like something that anyone would want at this point. And it's because they've burned it. Not that, I, mean, I don't think anyone really cared about Dungeon, Dungeon Keeper, Keeper to, to, begin with, to begin with. But yeah, I mean, the, um, they, they've, they've killed any chance of making another game in that series. That right. is a franchise that has burned out for That's them. That's scorched earth. Yeah. And it, they scorched it. Yeah. I mean, speaking of paywalls, there's also Secret of Mana. Um, not to be content with letting a franchise die peacefully, Square Enix has stuck a hand up the butt of the rotting corpse that is the Mana series and is now using it as a puppet show. Thank you very much for that, Daniel. <laughs> that, me- that, that, that metaphor is really a beautiful... That's some, there's some imagery there that you didn't get to say all the words of, I understand. This is radio. Um, Rise of Mana is a free-to-play action role-playing game genre salad with eight-player multiplayer and iOS controller support, and it is full of microtransactions. 
Oh, okay, so the last Mana game was 2012's free-to-play card game, Circle of Mana. Before that, it was 2007's Hero Mana, which was a an okay DS real-time strategy game. Can't series just die? I, who cares about Mana at this point? Like, I, would... I love Secret of Mana. I kind of liked Heroes of Mana. I kind of liked um, whatever that PS2 one was. But I gotta think, like, you, as someone who likes the Mana... Yeah, 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 sorry. You, as someone who likes Mana... What are you like? Does the are you looking for another a mono game on the um, iOS App Store? Definitely not in the App Store. That's not what I want an action role playing game to be. You, it doesn't seem like it seems like just the wrong place to use that name. Like right. just make a new series at after, the very least. After again seven years since your last proper mono game, it just feels like they're they very much are using these people these these franchises as a corpse because they're too lazy to come up with a new IP. Square, this... Square Enix is always like when an IP they they see an IP is burned out, they just kill it. Yeah. They just they're just like, "All right, that's it." That's why you never that's why the Final Fantasy games didn't really get to be on virtual console or downloadable services and until that's 13 it happened. Vector Arts Festival. Vector is sort of like an arts festival and the Penny Arcade Expo all wrapped up into a couple of small rooms. There were art projects to play, discussions to be had, and new people to meet. And weirdly, a bunch of them were all about romance. Starting with Rachel Weil. Rachel is a master's student from the University of Texas, and she wants everyone to have no bad memories. It actually comes from an advertisement for floppy disks from uh, mid-80s. And um, there's this fabulous picture of a young girl wearing a shirt that says no bad memories and she's holding a floppy disk. And of course, it's great because it's a computing pun, right? Um, Like no bad memory, corruption, all of that stuff. Um, But it also speaks to this idea of uh, kind of remembering your memories or, um, you know, if you don't have good memories, kind of fabricating them or, or trying to revisit your childhood. The problem, the main problem that I'm trying to address is that um, I find a lot of women around my age, um, they feel shame for the memories that they have from girlhood. They're sort of girlhood memories of maybe playing with Barbies or, or playing these sort of girly games. I think there's a lot of shame associated with it. And um, I think that comes from all sides. Uh, I totally understand the sentiment, for example, a feminist sentiment that, um, oh, well, these Barbie is tied up in all sorts of stereotypes and harmful messages to girls. And I I think those are valid uh, criticisms, but also to say like, oh, I'm sorry, we, you know, forget your Barbie memories. Those were bad. Feel ashamed about them. Repress them, push them back. Don't talk about them. I feel like that's also taking away some of the richness of women's experiences. No Bad Memories is a slogan that came out of her thesis on retro games. Though by retro games, she doesn't quite mean Mario and Sonic. She's talking about Shovel Knight or Fez. These are games that reference the original Nintendo Entertainment System, but are made today. Rachel believes that people like the retro aesthetic because of nostalgia. NES fans like to believe that everything was better back when the controller had two buttons and games were 8-bit. But romanticizing the past tends to hide the flaw. One of the functions of nostalgia is that it kind of filters out the bad stuff and we just remember the things that we really cherish. And I think that's valuable, but I think as game designers and game players and critics, we should also be looking at that critically 
and um, not just saying like, oh, yeah, that's a happy feeling and, and not really like kind of evaluating what that past meant. Um, I think looking back at the way that Nintendo of America marketed its games, um, the kind of games from Japan that they chose to bring over and the ones that they didn't, um, they were really strongly pushing toward um, selling these toys to boys and not there was not a whole lot of conversation about girls in gaming. So I think that part of the past is sometimes ignored because it's uncomfortable to talk about. And we like to think of uh, classic games as being less gendered and more like, oh, anyone could play Pac-Man. And in a sense, it's true decontextualized. But if you think about um, where arcade cabinets were located, could girls access these public spaces that were maybe seen as dangerous? Um, did girls' parents buy them Nintendos or Ataris? Um, then, and, and looking at the advertising as well, then you, you see, well, it's not quite as simple as that. So what kind of games did come out for, with a, targeting a female audience in the 8-bit era? You know, there weren't a whole lot uh, of games that were released in, the, um, in North America for girls until really the CD-ROM era. Um, you know, in terms of console games, there certainly were a few. Um, there was Barbie for NES, um, Dance Aerobics for NES, uh, Atari had Strawberry Shortcake musical matchups. Um, so there were like a few, I think even, well, that that's 16-bit, but in the 16-bit era, we have a few more. Um, but it really seems to break out in the CD-ROM, like right around the mid-90s. Um, Barbie Fashion Designer is a CD-ROM that sells amazingly well, over a million copies, one of the best-selling software titles that came out that year. Um, and it really cracked open the market for like, you know, kind of people to realize, hey, there's this whole untapped market here. Um, and it kind of kicked off this movement, which is called the girls game movement or pink games. Um, part of the success, I think, of CD-ROM games um, is that they rely on um, hardware that a lot of people already have in their homes, right? So this isn't a dedicated game console. Um, if you think about something like the NES, of course, it's very expensive when it comes out. Um, the benefit is that there's a, there are a variety of games, but maybe most of those games aren't um, interesting to your typical sort of girly girl. Uh, and so it becomes a really um, costly investment if you want to play one game. Uh, whereas by the time you hit the mid-90s, a lot of homes are starting to get personal computers. CD-ROMs are relatively inexpensive when compared to cartridge games. And so um, this was kind of a way for girls to enter gaming that was less costly for parents. Um, and, and yeah, it ended up uh, opening this whole market of games. You have um, games like the ones by Teresa Duncan, you have Purple Moon, Brenda Laurel, um, and this huge sort of influx and in interest in girls gaming. Now, one thing you mentioned is that the the earlier games were marketed towards um, towards boys. Is there any way any like the way the aesthetic was presented that specifically pushed towards that direction? Well, there are a few things. So, with the game, of course, there's like the narrative. Um, Miyamoto often cites uh, boys' literature as sort of inspiration for some of his games, and I think you see that in games like. Um, you know, Pitfall and Super Mario Brothers is sort of like going out into the world and um, and being sort of physically imperiled. Um, these sort of adventure games, jump over the obstacles and, and win the prize. Um, so yeah, I, th I think narrative-wise, um, 
you have that aspect. I think the settings also, um, when I think of NES games, I think a lot of uh, games about war, combat, fighting, and professional sports. And these are things that like women aren't allowed to do or aren't encouraged to do. Um, often, like we're not really like when I grew up as a girl, I loved I loved sports, um, but like I I never fantasized being in the NFL because I knew that like women aren't allowed to play in the NFL, right? So the these sort of situations, even though they're not necessarily gendered, of course, women can play football but not professionally, and so there's a sort of like idea of um, are these fantasies kind of things that girls are encouraged to participate in? Um, and then I think the third is also the marketing. Um, if you look back at old NES commercials, many of them are on YouTube now, and they're they're quite fun to watch. But um, very rarely do you see a girl touching a game controller or engaged in playing. And um, often the advertisements are also about how the Nintendo is very tough and electric. You see lots of lots of advertisements where it's the the NES console is like shooting off sparks, or it's in like this smoky fog, and it looks really badass. There's you know lasers and all sorts of stuff like this. And so, I think that kind of advertising, um, you know, children are very savvy about that kind of stuff, and yeah, very much marketed toward boys. Tell me about, about the Casio Loopy. Oh, I'm so glad you asked. I love talking about the Loopy. Um, the Loopy is a 32-bit uh, console that came out only in Japan. And um, we kind of think of it as being the first console targeted to girls. This isn't actually 100% true, but most of the games that came out for this console were um, kind of uh, visual novels or um, maybe fashion-based or things that kind of tended to appeal more to girls. And I, I think all of the games that had playable characters um, tended to female playable characters. Um, console is terribly interesting. Uh, there were only 11 games released. Um, so you know, uh, finding a complete collection, if you can do it, there aren't too many to collect. Um, the great thing about this console, the really unique thing, is that it had a built-in sticker printer. And so um, you can, for example, maybe you ha you're playing as a fashion model and you dress up in this certain outfit and you pick the background and maybe speech bubbles and things like that. And then um, you can actually print, uh, print small stickers that actually came with um, different cartridges that would print out different size stickers. And you could um, do anything from just swap stickers with your friends uh, even you could create little comic book panels and things like that. So um, super, super cool console. And um, I had the opportunity last summer to uh, live in Japan for a little while doing games research. And while I was there, I um, got almost a complete collection of Loopy. And um, since then, I've been um, talking to people who are familiar with the Loopy uh, development of it. Um, and on my website, Femicom.org, I've been posting um, catalog scans and information that I think isn't available a lot of places on the web. Um, one reason that I was really interested in Loopy is that I found a lot of the English language information and, and possibly Japanese language as well um, was incorrect. And it was interesting to me the ways in which it was incorrect. Um, it seemed to me that... Uh, people had certain expectations about what a girl's console would be like and then sort of wrote the history as if those things were true. So 
um, a lot of people would say, oh, well, the games are about this and they're really targeting this. And um, the example that I gave last night, of course, was that um, there's this sort of color corrected image of the console that makes it look purple, even though the console is gray. And then people kind of dismiss the console by saying, oh, it's a stupid purple console. Like, come on, Casio, don't be so sexist. Um, when in fact, like, that's not the color of the console and these, but it kind of supports these stories that people want to tell about girls gaming. And, um, so I found that really, really interesting. And I wanted to create a kind of a web resource through Femicom, um, where people could kind of really learn the facts and, um, maybe draw inspiration from these games. And, um, because I see it as a, as a resource for game developers, I wanted to provide screenshots and gameplay footage so that, um, you know, a game developer could say, oh, yeah, I was really inspired by, you know, Wanwan Aijo Monogatari on Casio Lupi. Um, I think because these games get lost and their histories get distorted, then we can never use that as a basis for nostalgia. And so that's kind of what I'm trying to provide, the sort of basis of, uh, you know, here's some other things you can pull from. It doesn't have to be Mario and Zelda. All right. Thank you so much for your time. Thanks a lot. Rachel Weil is a design MFA student from the University of Texas. She runs the Femicom Museum and is working on a thesis on the 8-bit aesthetic. We actually caught Rachel at the Dames Making Games exhibition at Vector. Before her talk, there was a short showcase of Game Jam games. These were from the DMG's Feb Fatale, and one of them in particular caught our attention. And last but not least, uh, Sexed Adventure by Kara Stone and Nadine Lessio. I'm Kara. This is Nadine. Uh, so we made a game called Sext Adventure, which is a very apt title uh, because it is a texting game about sexting. We can't you really should... show it. You'll lose at the point. Yep, it's the world's first sex adventure. You text the phone number 647-557-5128 and the game starts texting you back. The stories actually start out pretty funny, but they all end in misery. Here's a quote. The sparkle of my dildo matches the sparkle of your eyes. The designers are Kara Stone and Nadine Lessio. We talked to Kara a few weeks ago about her project Hand to Heart, but we had to bring her back to talk about this arousing adventure. I was deep into cyborg theory a few months ago and thinking a lot about women and technology. And then I saw Nadine's previous game called Cat Quest, which was um, a similar texting game with very different content uh and um yeah and then i don't know just came to me yeah sexting now is like such a multimedia experience you know there's like photos and videos and like on your iphone you can like see people typing it's just very strange um the kind of intimacy that people have with each other over technology Mm -hmm. i thought it was bizarre and I thought it was funny and could be explored. <laughs> how does it work? Like, how do you how do you how do you make a game? I guess that works off texting. Um, well, there's a service out there called Twilio, mm-hmm. and it is a internet app based service um, run in Canada. Yay! Uh, <laughs> that you can you can use to make um, internet based texting applications. So you know when you get a short code for something and you text it, and then it sends you an email, like those kinds of things. Um, and I was playing with it earlier when I was trying to learn some more things about Python. 
and thought, well, they have a Python library. Why don't I see if I can do like, like an old school text adventure setup with actual texting? Um, so one of the things that really struck me about text adventures, I was going through it a couple times, is that the you aren't asked about your gender until halfway through. Like it's not you, you are asked at some point, which is interesting, but you also aren't like asked off the top. What was kind of I guess what went into like choosing where that happened and if that happened at all? Uh, yeah, I didn't I didn't want to make a sexting game that uh, presupposed your gender identity or genitalia uh, or sexuality. So it kind of asks you, it never is like, do you want me to be a female or a male or gay or straight or anything like that? It kind of just, you play as you go in some storylines, you can switch over. Um, and sometimes it asks you uh, what kind of body part of your own you're touching, but it's still like body parts and not really about gender identity. That's really important to me because, first of all, probably computers, whenever they become agentic, aren't going to have genders and sexualities and stuff, um, as well as so anyone can play, so it can be inclusive. Um. And I mean, on on that note about body parts, there is a bit in there where the where the robot kind of points at the the, the kind of the robot that's talking back to the AI is is um kind of points out it's like it's just a bunch of body parts floating around and it's weird and uncomfortable. Um, but and as it goes, this, this kind of that is the character, I guess, is this robot that's disillusioned with what's happening. What kind of inspired that choice? You're talking about a bit about cyborg theory before. Um, well, there's a few storylines, uh, and one of them is, yeah, does not really care for body parts or flesh and kind of uh, just likes computers over it, you know, being less messy or soft and fleshy and uh, whatever the reasoning a computer would dislike bodies. Uh, and I was just, yeah, trying to explore the different ways in which computers might react to people and bodies well, another thing that was kind of interesting is that usually when i play kind of text adventures and stuff like this and things where i'm like i'm always going back to make other choices it's always like well i'm just going to pick the other choice now but kind of the intimacy of what was going on made it really hard sometimes to pick other options that i wasn't <laughs> feeling you know what i mean like i don't know That's if really I'm... Interesting. Mm -hmm. was that sort of something you you realized going going in or something that you you felt or wanted to kind of create for people uh not really, not specifically. Uh, I think it's really interesting. Uh, it makes a lot of sense. Um, I knew that some people would go on a specific path and wouldn't want to go on another one, you know, for whatever reason or sexual orientation or kinks or whatever. Um, but that's really interesting. I don't know. Not, not, did not think about that before. Mm -hmm. What was your choice for like making them all bad endings? All like just. Oh, uh, sorry, go on, please. I did not choose that, kind of just came out. Mm -hmm. um, I knew, yeah, I don't know why specifically, but once I started writing it, that's the way it came out. Um, yeah, some of them are sad, uh, some of them are creepy, um, but I think it is just to show how the intimacy through technology kind of breaks down um, and doesn't deliver in the way that personal experiences might. Not that it's better or worse, but it, it's just different. I felt like it was, it was sort of a thing where, um, say you've only got one or a certain kind of data set to work with, 
and your experience is contextual to the things that you know. If you only know those things, it's always going to be kind of kind of weird trying to express yourself when you haven't you know, gone off and figured out other stuff, which if you only have a database of floating body parts, <laughs> you know, it might actually happen in that way where it's like, oh, well, I, I haven't, I don't know these other things. So I kind of found that, that interesting, but yeah. Yeah, I mean, it was it was always interesting to me when I when I got to an ending, was, and it was either like really I either couldn't stop laughing because it was something f- fantastic, like like a, the sparkle of the dildo, or it was just it just sort of ended, and it was just like, well, that's it, yeah. this is how it goes. It's just like real sex. Ends. <laughs> 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 Kara Stone is an artist living in Toronto. Nadine Lessio is a game designer who is working on the Interstellar Selfie Station. We'll be hearing from her again very soon. So, speaking of the Feb Fatale, we have yet another romance-based adventure that came out of last year's Feb Fatale. It's called A Long Time Coming. It's about trying not to tell your boyfriend that you're cheating on him. The game is basically a visual novel with one twist. At climactic moments, the game stops. You're given three options, recover, hostile, and confess, and you have to physically throw a knife across the room to pick a choice. Designers Sagan Yi and Nadine so Lucio when I tell us why. Because we only had 48 hours to do the game, so I was basically writing and making everything up as I went along because there wasn't any time to plan it out beforehand. Uh, it's It sort of started switching, like having less emphasis on the whole lying mechanic. And I had the idea that the lies would stack and you'd have to keep your story straight and all that. But since I didn't have time to map all that out beforehand, it sort of more became about the power dynamic, the unequal power dynamic between these two characters. And you're sort of, as you play, um, sort of realizing, you know, the real the relationship is kind of broken to begin with and there's some toxic elements to it. And I think that's what people get frustrated about in relationships. It's not like huge things a lot of the time. It's little, you know, microaggressions. Why why didn't you do the dishes? Why didn't you put your coat on the hanger? Yeah. It's it's those little things that continuously build up. And those are often the things um, that that trigger (laughs) emotional responses. Uh, okay, so why then, how did the knife work into this? Into I mean, I managed to play it on the keyboard, but it's hard to kind of grasp just from looking at the the pictures how uh, how the knife got involved in picking the options. Okay, we can explain how the, the, how the whole thing gets set up. Well, you are metaphorically stabbing someone in the back. <laughs> <laughs> um, um, and what ends up happening is you have... Your areas that um, they're just labeled your your target areas that are like A, B, or C, and they're random. They switch. The target areas will switch depending Mm. depending on a question. It's just picked at random, and so you physically have to figure out which one you want. If it's like a passive one or an aggressive one um, or an evasive one, and just you have to pick it and throw it. And if you don't get it, then it'll default to something else. Yeah. So the three targets that sort of rotate around are. confess, recover, and be hostile. Yeah. So the idea behind the the way we work the knife throwing in was that if you're really emotional, like you could one of those three things is going to slip out at any time depending on your accuracy with the knife. So it's kind of adds an unpredictable element that relies on a very specific <laughs> skill of being able to get a knife into a 
tinfoil board. <laughs> yeah, a friend a friend of mine was like, you should have used a shuriken, and I'm like, yeah, lower barrier to entry. That's right. <laughs> yeah, the knives can be a little intimidating. Um, That's why I was usually the one throwing. <laughs> and the the targets were different sizes too, so sometimes the the confess area would be larger than the other two, and then so you'd have a greater chance of screwing up and accidentally. Yeah. Saying I cheated on you with my boss. Ah. Yeah. <laughs> It worked out okay. Um, it became more of like a two-player combo thing. Yeah, with, I... <laughs> the, with the person on the keyboard yelling out, like, recover, recover, and that, then Nadine yeah. would have to, like, stab the board. That, that proved to be kind of fun, too. Yeah, that was also fun. if you play it in fun. a crowd, then the crowd starts, like, starts yelling, yeah, they start yelling at you. Like, no, confess, confess. No, get to that one. <laughs> it's a, people were surprisingly quick to to pick it up, especially in crowded areas where like there was like <laughs> drunk people and loud music and stuff, and we were screaming the instructions, <laughs> and uh, but yeah, people got the idea of it, and a lot. Of, like I had one woman, like the first thing he says to you is like, "Oh, honey, I made you your favorite eggplant parmesan dish or whatever," and she's like, "I love eggplant parmesan. How could I have ever cheated on this guy?" <laughs> And then by, then by the end of the game, she's like, this guy's kind of a jerk and I don't like him anymore. So it's kind of interesting because, because the game starts after you, your character has committed this act. Uh, I think it forces people into the role of, you are a cheater. Like, this game, in this game, you have already cheated on this guy. There's no going back. So you have mm-hmm. to kind of roll with that. And... The way people play um, was not how I was expecting them to play because I put a lot of sort of comedy, goofy options in there. Like the whole getting mug thing is pretty over the top and stuff. Uh, so I the circus choice. Yeah, the, there was there's one part where he's like, "What? So how was your day?" And you can say, "I joined the circus at one point." And I thought people would all go for the comedy option um, or the funniest, over the top, just to see where that goes, but. Pretty much everyone played it the exact same way, where they were trying to evade all of his questions and literally try and get through the evening without being caught, (laughs) which was interesting to me that uh, the win condition of the game was, you know, don't, uh, is not do the right thing and and tell him, (laughs) like, like what actually happened. The win condition is don't get caught (laughs) by this guy. (laughs) That's what I found actually really fascinating because it's a really dour way to win. I, I like, per, like, th- why leave it? Why, why leave kind of the game? I mean, you had a limited time, but why leave the game specifically at? Um, well, I got another. I, I guess I got away with another day of lying about this. I think it's realistic. Like when people, I actually people have asked me, "Is this autobiographical? Like, did this actually happen to you?" And I was like, "No." <laughs> <laughs> Not at all, but I that's just how I imagined it would go. Like, it's just, you just have to live with what you've done, and depending on how your, your knife-throwing abilities are, maybe you, there isn't really any great ending. Like, even when you confess, it's just because it kind of bursts out of you, and it's mm. not very controlled, and um, so I think that's just how the characters came out of that. Like, they were just kind of very passive-aggressive in the way that they dealt with things, and sort of pen- all this pent-up energy gets unleashed at inappropriate moments, and so it's just kind of messy and sad. <laughs> but that's how life is sometimes. 
how would you guys react if you, how would you, what, what path would you guys take if you guys were actually in that situation, though? What do you think? The funny thing is, the way I would prefer to handle it isn't really represented in the game, where you actually voluntarily say, this is what I did, no, how do we move forward from here? Like, the mature option <laughs> is not in the game, um, but... I mean, that's how I like to think that I would handle it, that I would own up to my mistakes. But I, I, ideally, I would never get in the situation where I feel like I had to cheat on someone. Um, but, you know, who knows when you're actually, when it's actually happened to you, how you would actually behave. Yeah, I would probably just leave. <laughs> I might leave a note or something <laughs> and just be like, I'm sorry, I this I'm gone. <laughs> that option isn't in the game either. No. Like, uh, leave a note on the fridge. Just leave yeah. a note on the fridge. Uh, this isn't working. Um, confrontation is always difficult. So, and I'm kind of evasive sometimes. Um, but mostly, I would probably just say, I did this. This is an issue. This has been going on for a while. Be mad. I'm going to go. I mean, really, what else are you going to do? You can... You can you could lie about something like that for a while, but eventually you can't lie about it anymore. Yeah, and that's kind of... If you get manage to get through the whole game without getting caught, there's kind of that note of, I think I'm going to get caught one day, but that hasn't come yet. And so that's kind of represented in the title a long time coming, so it's kind of building up to a point where you can't really escape what you've done. Alright, I'd like to thank you guys for your time. Thanks. Thank you. Sagan Yi is an animator and works with Games Making Games. You already know who Nadine Lessio is. That's it for this week. I'm producer Armin Bali. And I'm features editor Daniel Rosen. Built to Play was made with the help of Rachel Simone Weil, Kara Stone, Nadine Lessio, and Sagan Yi. We'll actually have more from Vector next week, but for now, check out our website, builttoplay.ca. We're available on Stitcher Radio and iTunes. Leave us a review so we know how we're doing, and more people can find the show. But the review has to be positive, because if it's negative, we'll find you and start charging 99 cents for every time you attempt to listen to the show. We're usually on the air at Scope at Ryerson every Saturday at 1 p.m., and rerun every Monday and Thursday, also at 1 p.m. Plus, check out our website for our theme month, Can a Love Bloom Even on the Battlefield. This week, we wrap up with wondering why we hate games. Also, you'll find a review of Professor Layden and the Osron Legacy, which I did not hate at all. And we update the website every Sunday. You can find us on Twitter at built to play and me personally at Flarkon. That's F-L-R-K-C-O-N. And I'm Daniel underscore Rosen. And uh, if you give me a $5 microtransaction, I'm going to take off my shirt for you. Thanks so much for listening. Yeah, this officer showed up. It was right when we were about down. to pack up, and I turn around, and these two uniformed cops are standing there holding the knives know, that we like... just, they were just lying on the table, and they're like, "What are these?" I know. And then I was sort of like freaking out because I'm a good little girl, and I have never had to deal with cops before. And Nadine is like, <laughs> "I got this. It's fine. Don't worry." <laughs> so I've she... dealt with large installations, or at least some installations, where it's like, "Hmm, that that, that could be kind of, that, that could be questionable," and Authority figures are just 
you just talk to them, you tell them what it is, you walk yeah, into, so she you walk into the process, into and, this and they're technical like, process. <laughs> and they're like, oh, well, that's kind of cool, but can you put it away now? It's like, sure. Yeah, they let us off with a warning. <laughs> <laughs> and I mean, we were, they, they, I mean, Toronto Long Winter is this big event at the yeah. Great Hall that's full of loud music and and alcohol and we were right next to the bar i, I don't know why they put I, us there i don't know either and the room was full of strobe lights as well because there was a a music thing going on at the other end of the room so hilarious. so we as soon as we got there we looked at each other and we were like there's no way we're gonna actually be throwing knives yeah. in this environment things bounce yeah we're not throwing anything yes but if you if you hit if the hilt hits uh first then it has a tendency to bounce off in unpredictable ways so it was a safety issue <laughs> <laughs> just like what <laughs> what's wrong with these people 